Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's good to have you this morning here at Crosswinds. It's good to have you here on the Palm Sunday, and it's great to be together. He's not real happy, but he'll be happy in a minute. Gets to chill out a little bit. Uh, by the way, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys tonight. In case some of you guys don't know, tonight is the Experience the Passion. Uh, we have the Expo Center rented for Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday from 5 to 8 o'clock. Tonight, Monday, and Tuesday night, uh, the Experience the Passion is open. Let me explain to you what that is if you're new. There's 14 stations we put together, uh, various people in the church, to cover the last 18 hours of Christ's life, to help you experience what Jesus went through. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the stations will have a, a crossbeam, a legitimate Roman crossbeam, the kind and the size that was actually used, the weight that was actually used, and it'll be suspended in such a way that you can get under it and actually feel like what it would have been like for Jesus to have that on his back. In another station, there is a replica of a legitimate Roman nail that was actually used in the first century that would have been pounded through his wrists and, and through his hands. And station after station, you will get a chance to experience and understand those last 18 hours of Christ's life. So I, it'll take you about 30 to 45 minutes to walk through the exhibit. Maybe think of it a little bit like going through a museum because there's 14 exhibits and 14 rooms that you will go through to help understand what, what Jesus went through. But I commend you not just for us to experience this, but we did it in the Expo Center because we're trying to reach our community with the good news of Jesus Christ. Even if it's just your family, that happens to go, and it'll be, it'll be a pro, totally appropriate for your children to go, by the way, to help them to understand what Christ went through. Even if you're just your family goes Sunday night, it'll help you understand who to invite and how to invite your neighbors and your friends so they can go through it with you again. And the very last station, station number 15, is a chance for myself and some other people to ask if you understand the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and if not, to explain it and to invite you to trust in Him. So it's a designed as an evangelistic outreach. Thursday night, we are doing a Monday Thursday service, but it will not be on this campus. It will be down on our Spencer campus at 7 o'clock. We decided to simplify things. Since we're so busy at the beginning of the week, we'd let them work on Monday Thursday. And then on Sunday, no one will be here in this building. We have one service over at the Sammy Center across the street at 10.30 in the auditorium. And just as the uh, beginning of this week is called Experience the Passion, the theme for Sunday service next week is called Experience the Resurrection. And we're going to focus on uh, experiencing what it was like on that resurrection morning when the tomb was found empty and the apostles began to realize what this meant for them, that Jesus Christ had conquered the grave. So a lot of stuff coming up this week, pretty busy things. Now, normally at this point, we would be continuing in our study through the book of 1 Timothy, but we're putting pause on the 1 Timothy study for this week and for next week with Easter. We'll return to 1 Timothy after Easter. What we're going to do this week is we're going to focus in a little bit on what is our theme for the year. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about what our theme is, which is generous and generous living, that we would be generous people 
in our lives to one another because we have an incredibly generous God who has been incredibly gracious and good to us. In fact, this week we are going to ponder the greatness of God's generosity as we look into the idea that He gave His only begotten Son to die in our place for our sins. And as a response to God's generosity for us, we want to live generous lives to one another. Now, what does it mean to live a generous life? And how can we describe what that looks like? I think one of the best ways to, to picture that and understand that is simply by looking at one of Jesus' most famous parables. And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's probably one of his most well-known ones. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to read that in Luke chapter 10. Then we're going to study it a little bit. And then I'm going to help you apply it to our lives. And what will it mean for us to be men and women who live generous lives because we have an incredibly generous God who gave His own Son for us? So I'd ask you, if you have a Bible, take it out and stand. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, it's found on page 868. So go ahead and stand out of reverence and honor for God's Word. I know that not everybody can stand, but for those of you who can, join me in doing this. I'll begin on Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and read through verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. That ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. 
If you notice, this parable sort of breaks apart into two different sections. There's this first section, which is a given exchange back and forth between Jesus and the lawyer. And then there's the parable of the Good Samaritan itself. So we're going to look at it in those two pieces. Let's begin by looking at this uh, exchange back and forth between Jesus and the lawyer. And actually, it sort of, it all revolves around this question. Here's the question. What does God want from my life? What does God want from my life? It says the lawyer begins to test Jesus. And when we think of lawyers, the first thing we think of is ambulance chasing. We think of litigation. We think of high fees. We think of all kinds of courts and battles. That's actually not, what, what's, that's not what's going on here. If you read this in the original language, this means he is a theological lawyer. He's not an ambulance chasing lawyer. This is essentially a guy who has a law degree in the Old Testament. Today we would call him the Bible answer man. This is the guy you people go to when they have questions on how to apply God's law to their lives. And he's actually not on Jesus' team. He's not in his favor. He says um, he's going to test Jesus. And the Greek word there for test literally means to put under stress so it will reveal flaws and imperfections. So the Bible answer man's like, I'm going to give Jesus some really hard questions and make him look bad. That's what I'm going to do to him. Well, here's what his hard question is. His hard question is, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a tough one. And I love the way Jesus answers it. Jesus doesn't actually give him an answer. He answers a question with another question. You ever notice he does that a lot? You ask Jesus a question, he answers you by giving you another question to think on and ponder. And here's his answer. He says, well, what is your understanding of the Bible? What do you think the Bible says about giving eternal life? And this is what he says. Essentially, he says, well, God tells us that we have to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what God is looking for us out of our life. And actually, he, he's right. Now, if you look at the Old Testament Mosaic Law, if you know, there's a lot of commands in there. In fact, the Jews would say there's a technically 613 different commands in the Old Testament that the Jews would have to obey. But most people can't keep 613 ready reference commands in their head to remember them all. And so what you find is times people would make shorter lists, sort of summary lists, one such summary list would be the Ten Commandments. Now, if you remember these ten things, it should show you how to live a life pleasing to God. Now, here's the interesting part of the Ten Commandments, if you ever study them. The first four commandments all have to do with our relationship with God. They're vertical in nature, such as, you shall have no other gods before me. The last six commandments are all horizontal in, in nature. They all do with our relationship with one another. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so what you start to find is that God's commands sort of fall into two groupings. One about how we love God, the vertical ones, and the other about how we love one another, the horizontal ones. And what this Jewish uh, law doctor is saying, just focus on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God wants out of our life, which is a good summary. And he should know this. 
Because as an Orthodox Jew, he would say the Shema, which is one of their prayers they say twice a day. And in the Shema, he would quote Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says that I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also, he would know Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is part of the Levitical law that he would have memorized, which says, guess what? You should love your neighbor as yourself. So this is all very clearly presented to him. Jesus says, you're right. But here's just a little thought for you. You notice this is all taking place before Jesus has come. This is all sort of taking place before the greatness of what God has done for us takes place. How does Jesus sort of modify this about what God wants out of our life? Here's my summary. What Jesus does is he intensifies it. Because we know that God loves us and that we should love him. But once we understand that God loves us so much that he gave his only son to die for us, that there is nothing we can do to pay for our sin. But Jesus paid for the sin of all of our past, the sin of our present, and even the sins that we would commit in our future, that all we can do is just receive that gift by simple faith because God loves us so much. He did it all for us. Doesn't that just, just crunch your heart? Since what Jesus has done intensifies our love for God, the idea is it should also intensify our love for our neighbor, intensify the way we love one another. In fact, look what Jesus says in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for what? One another. Now, here's where it's interesting. It says, a new commandment I give you. But it's not a new commandment. Love one another and love your neighbor as yourself comes from the Levitical law code. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But why is it a new commandment? Here's why it's a new commandment. That you should love one another just as I have loved you. The love that Jesus has for us was before this unknown. But once it is known, as we're going to celebrate it this week, how are we to respond? To love others the same way that Jesus loved us. God loves us radically. and We are to love others radically. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the idea of this is that, you know, we should love God passionately and we should love one another radically. That's what God wants out of our life. And when Jesus Christ comes along, we understand even more how much God loves us. And we respond with even more love to Him. And we should respond with even more love, radical love to our neighbor to those people around us. Then the question becomes, what does it look like, that kind of radical love? What does God want us to live like when it comes to loving one another? That's where the rest of the story goes. Who is my neighbor? See, this, 
Bible answer man, this Jewish theological lawyer, it says he wanted to justify himself. That means make himself look good. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And by asking this question, what he is implicitly saying is, who is not my neighbor? Who are the people I don't have to love? Who are the people that I can get out of loving and sacrificing for? You see, he's looking for who he can get off the hook on here. And so Jesus tells him this story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, historically, you need to know there is literally a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho that Jesus was talking about. Uh, it was a road that's 17 miles long. In Jerusalem, it starts out at 2,600 feet above sea level. By the time it gets to Jericho, it is 825 feet below sea level. So it goes through a descent of 3,425-foot drop in 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. As for the uh, look of this road, it's not a highway. It is a rocky area. It is, has steep cliffs on the side. It is windy. It has caves. It is a very difficult road to travel. In fact, it's interesting, it's talk, this road is talked about in Joshua chapter 18, verse 17. It says that on this road is a place called the Pass of Adumin, which means nothing to you until you translate that in Hebrew into English. That means the path of blood. Blood alley. This is where thugs, this is where um, criminals, this is where the terrorists all hang out and they jump people on the road so they can steal from them. It's legendary for this. Even in the time of Jesus, if you read um, the ancient historian Josephus, Josephus talks about this road and he literally says that you do not travel this road unless you are carrying a sword. In modern day, that would be like you don't travel this road unless you have a concealed carry permit and you're part of the NRA. Because you will be jumped and you have to defend yourself. That's exactly what happens. This Jewish boy gets jumped on the road. And he doesn't just get a little jumped. I mean, he gets majorly jumped. They take his animal. They take his stuff. They take his wallet. And you notice it says here in the text, you read it closely, they stripped him bare. They took his very clothes. The boy is left buck naked, has nothing left to him. And he isn't just left there, he is beaten there. And we're talking MMA style, closed fist, no referee, you know, three, four, five people on one naked guy that just gets beat to the tar. His, his eyes are swollen shut. He's bloody. He's senseless. I'm assuming at this point, for a while at least, he was knocked unconscious. Because it literally says here in the text that he was left half dead. 
not looking good at all for this fella. But here's good news. Help is on the way, isn't he? Coming down that road is a priest. Now, I'm sure if that man was able to open his eyes and to, to peer and he could tell this guy was a priest by his clothing, I'm sure he thought, oh, I'm finally rescued because priests in that day were usually relatively well off, had plenty of cash. Priests, of course, would be legendary for having known the Word of God, for being men of compassion and graciousness. And here is a guy who's going to come along. He has an animal, apparently, and he's going to save the day for me. But what does the priest do? says he passes by on the other side of the road. Literally in the Greek, what it says is he gets as far away as possible from this guy. Um, I don't know how it would have been, but maybe it's one of those things where he like, all of a sudden, imaginary begins to start looking at the sky like he's checking for birds. <laughs> you know, so he doesn't have to look to the right. And... He can pretend he didn't see the man in desperate need, though he saw him, but he's intentionally ignoring him. Now, sometimes you read the commentators on this, and they go very easy on this priest, and they say, well, you know what, he was probably just worried about ritual impurity, and he didn't want to become impure for serving in the temple. I don't really buy any of that. Here's why you don't buy it, because he wasn't going from Jericho to Jerusalem, he was going the other way. He was coming home from work, wasn't he? He's going from Jerusalem, where he served as a priest, back to Jericho. The other thing you need to know is if you look in some of the Jewish literature of the day, they're very clear that in an emergency situation or a crisis situation, it doesn't matter about becoming unclean. You just help a person. But he intentionally ignored a person. What was going through his head? Probably the same kind of stuff that would go through your head and mine. I have a calendar. I have a schedule to keep. Man, this would really ruin it if I went to help that guy. Not only that, maybe this is a trap. Maybe the robbers are hiding behind the rocks, and if I, if I go there to help them, they're going to jump me too. I'm not willing to risk that. And he starts coming up with all these justifications in his mind about how he can ignore his neighbor in need. Anybody ever else do that? Oh, just me, right? We all come up with justifications on how we can ignore people in need. And here's the interesting part. Remember, there are two things that God really wants out of our life. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's, there's a vertical dimension to our love and a horizontal dimension to how we live. Like, they're like left hand and right hand. They always go together. And notice the priest. He is so good, it would seem to be, at loving God. But where does he fall short? Loving people. That sound like us sometimes? I'm in church every Sunday, reading my Bible. God, I'm loving you. But when it comes to others, well, that takes too much time. Next comes the Levite. Now, who's a Levite? Think of a Levite like a JV version of a priest, not the varsity. Um, 
Levites and priests all came from the tribe of Levi, but priests came from the family line of Aaron. So that's why they could be priests. Uh, a Levite would be somebody who's in the tribe of Levi, but not from the family line of Aaron. So he doesn't lead worship. He gets to assist in worship. But still, a guy who is obviously well-respected in, in Jewish literature and Jewish life. And he comes along and he does the same thing. What does he do? Passes by on the other side of the road. It's sort of like what we do sometimes when we go to Walmart. You ever have that happen to you? You're like afraid to go to Walmart? Well, here's what happens for me. You know, you're the pastor and your wife says, go to Walmart, get some eggs and get back here because we have to get this recipe done. And so I go into Walmart, and I'm a little bit like doing the Kojak thing, trying I don't like, I, I, Lord, please don't let me meet any church people because I really can't talk or my wife is going to get in trouble. You know, so you try to pretend to almost ignore people. This is a little bit like, take that tongue in cheek. Don't get too serious right now. Okay, some of you are looking at me like, oh, he ignores me in Walmart. No, no but you know, take, take it tongue in cheek. But the reality is we all do that. You know, we are busy in life, and so we try to justify ignoring people. And that's what the Levite did. He tries to go by, it says, on the other side of the road. He sees the guy, but he doesn't meet the need of the guy. He's got it really good on the vertical side, but he's fallen short on the horizontal side. And then Jesus tells the rest of the story, and here's where it gets interesting. What about the Samaritan? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here is where the, we miss the impact of this. Because Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. And most of us are ignorant on the background of the Samaritan. So let me tell you a little bit about that. What makes this so exciting here. Under King David and King Solomon, uh, Israel had a united kingdom. But then under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam uh, made some poor choices, and they ended up in a divided kingdom between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, if you study this in the Old Testament. Essentially what happened was a bloody civil war. The northern kingdom began to be, become known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. Both of those kingdoms fell into apostasy, and both were judged by God, and he, God sent a, another country to conquer them. The country that God sent to conquer the northern kingdom, Israel, were the Assyrians. The Assyrians deported most of the Jews into exile, and they were never to return. But here's the interesting part. The Assyrians left some of the poorest Jews in the land those poorest Jews began to intermarry with the Gentiles that moved into the land. and That was the beginning of the Samaritans. So what you have is sort of like half Jews, half pagans is what these Samaritans are. 
intermarried, mixed, and they don't quite have the whole Jewish thing down right. That's what happens in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, which is Judah, they eventually fall into apostasy. God sends the Babylonians to conquer them. They are brought into exile, but Babylon is ultimately conquered under Cyrus, king of Persia, 70 years later, and he lets the Jews return to the southern kingdom. They return, and one of the first things they want to do is to rebuild the temple, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And um, what they want to do at that point is they want to begin reinstituting worship. Now, you can read about this in the books of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But here's where it gets interesting. They start to rebuild the temple, and the Samaritans, their intermarried half-breed folks, want to come down and start to help. And Nehemiah is like, and Ezra are like, no, you cannot be part of us. Because we're about, like, we're about revival, about getting back to what we should be in worship to God. And the Samaritans go from at first feigning help to then becoming their bitterest enemies. You can read about this in the book of Nehemiah, a guy named Sanballat. Sanballat is a Samaritan, and he is doing everything to undermine the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. There is no good blood at this point between the Jews and Samaritans. Eventually what happens, the Samaritans build a temple to the north, a rival temple of their own on Mount Gerizim. In fact, there's huge tension between the Jews and the Samaritans at this point. And then in 128 B.C., some of the more fanatical Jews from the land of Judah go north and they destroy the temple for the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. That's sort of like ISIS destroying the White House. You know, if ISIS destroyed the White House, there would be like no love between Americans and the people who are behind destroying your own national headquarters. That's sort of what goes on. And even to the day of Jesus, what you have is the Samaritans running terrorist tactics down south into Jerusalem. This is one of the things they would do for terrorist tactics, not the kind of things that you guys who have been in the military are used to, but they would do things like take bags of human bones, sneak into the temple, and then dump the human bones because the human bones would then be technically defiling the temple. And everyone would go freak out about that kind of stuff. So this is the kind of thing you have going back and forth. Even when it would come to Jews traveling to, to the north into Galilee, they could go through the middle section of Samaria much shorter, but they almost never did. They almost always went all the way out to the side, walked all the way around the Samaritans, and then came back up north. Took them a couple days extra journey, but anything to avoid hanging out with these people. In fact, the daily prayer of the Jews in this day went something like this. Lord, give me a good day. Lord, keep me safe. And may there be no Samaritans in the resurrection on the last day. That is what they prayed in the traditional Jewish prayer every morning. That there be no Samaritans surviving into the resurrection. In fact, when they want to insult Jesus... And they want to say as nasty of things as they could to Jesus. In John chapter 8, 48, they said to Jesus, you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. Because they couldn't think of anything worse to say to him than to call him a Samaritan. Are you beginning to get the tension that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans? 
You see, when a Samaritan comes across a half-dead Jewish man who can't defend himself on the side of the road, what would be the normal reaction? To finish him off. That's literally what would normally happen. But that's not what happens. It says this Samaritan looks at someone who is considered an arch enemy and he feels compassion for him. This word compassion is very loaded. I'm going to teach you a little Greek because it's really cool. In the Greek, it's the word splagizomai. You got to spit when you say it. Splagizomai. Say it with me. Come on. Splagizomai. One more time from the gut and spit. Splagizomai. And then a bunch of people are going like this with their hair. You have the word right. And literally, it means to feel from the gut and inside. What this means is this Samaritan sees this beaten up Jewish boy. And he looks at him and he has the same feelings as if that man were his own son. Not an enemy finishes off, but a son who has just been beaten. Now, what does he do? It says he binds up his wounds. Just so you know, Band-Aid brand Band-Aids are not invented yet. To bind up the wounds means you have to take cloth and clothing. A cloth and clothing, by the way, at this time is not mass manufactured in China or some uh, third world country in a sweatshop, so it's cheap. Clothing is all handmade. It is extremely expensive. This guy sees the man on the side of the road bleeding. He takes his own clothing and he tears it into shreds to bind that wound at great cost to himself. And what does he do? He takes and he pours oil and wine on his wounds. Why does he do this? Well, wine has alcohol in it. And it is what they use as an antiseptic. It's a very painful antiseptic, but it's what will get the germs out of the wound. Why would you put oil on this? Some of you have seen people who have been badly hurt in battle, and you see all the crustiness of the blood and how tight the wound is. and It doesn't move, and they can't do so without great pain. They would put oil on that to soften it so the person could move a little bit with, with, less, with, with more comfort. And then what does he do? He takes the guy and he puts him on his own animal. He walks and he lets this Jewish boy, who would normally be his enemy, ride. And they take him to an inn. And he stays up all night, it says, in the inn, tending to his wounds caring for him, giving him the nutrition he needs, giving him the care that is essential because he's half dead. Remember this. And he gets up the next morning and he goes to leave and he gives two denarii to the innkeeper and says, if you need any more, let me know. I'll, I'll pay it when I return. Now, most of you don't have denarii in your back pocket. So that means nothing to you. How could I uh, explain it to you? If I put that in modern-day equivalents of cash, well, depending on what kind of inn this is, I mean, it could be a microtel, it could be a residence inn, I don't know. It's roughly the equivalent 
of a 24 to 48 day stay in a motel for that guy to recover when he's gone. Radical, magnanimous generosity to a man that he considered his neighbor. When for most people, that person would be considered an enemy because it's between the Jews and Samaritans. The honest truth is that many of us in the modern American church are very similar to the priest and the Levites. Isn't it true? We also we spend so much time focusing on our relationship with God, making sure we're in a right relationship with Him and enjoying Him and loving Him, but we often forget to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those people that are hard to love, we find ways to justify so we can walk by on the other side of the road. But what does God want out of our life? To love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's like a left hand and a right hand. And to love God passionately because of Jesus Christ. And to love our neighbors radically in ways that are above and beyond what a normal person in this world would do because we have been touched by Jesus Christ's love for us and it changes the way we love the way we love others and we love others much deeper much more radically much more sacrificially than other people in this world because Jesus Christ has loved us first now let me just summarize this I put down uh, four key application points in your outline if you want to follow along and fill those out. And here's what they are. What does God want me to do to respond out of this text? Number one, go out of my way to love people that are not natural friends. Even love my enemies. Go out of my way to love people that aren't natural friends. Even love my enemies, like Jews and Samaritans. Let me give you some real easy practical examples that I've seen in the last few weeks. I know there are some uh, young couples that what they have decided to do is in, in, when they have some free time, they've made a regular habit to go visit the nursing home. Not because they have a friend or a relative there, but because there are people that are lonely there. People that don't have family there. And some young couples have said, well, I'm going to be that family to them. On Wednesday night or on Tuesday night, I'm going to go in love them and meet their need. I thought that was really cool. Others of you, I know, have been through divorces, and I hear the stories of the difficulties you have in the relationship with your ex, and how it's so easy to just get angry with them, and to make it difficult to work with. But what happens if, instead of getting angry, you went out of your way to be gentle, and kind, and malleable, and easy to work with for them? And they said, why are you this way after all that I've put you through? Well, you say, because Jesus has told me that it's not just about loving him. It's about radically loving people, even if they're difficult to get along with, even if they're enemies. I'll give you another way to apply this. I know what usually happens after church is if you're in your 20s, you often hang out with other people in your 20s. If you're in your 80s, you hang out with other people in your 80s. 
because your own friend group is your natural friends. But what happens if some 20-year-olds went up to some 70 and 80-year-olds and just said, hey, I just want to get to know you. I, I want to just get, hang out a little bit. And what happens if some people who are elderly and have some more free time and some resources actually went up to some young adults with a family and kids and said, you know, I want to get a chance to know you. You're not naturally my friends, but I want to radically love you. In fact, can I take you out to lunch? You guys don't have any money to go out to lunch. I'll buy. You see, this whole idea of going out of my way for people that are not naturally my friends and even loving my enemies, it comes screaming out of this text. Then there are three other things I want to be real practical about. Number two, be generous with my time. Generous with my time. This is so obvious. This, the priest and the Levite didn't want to give their time. The Samaritan gave 24 hours of his time. He didn't say, I've got a busy schedule. He said, you know, I've got projects and I have people. There's always more than enough work on projects. Amen? But a people need trumps a project need every time. Should I say that again? Let the people need trump a project need every time. Be generous with your time. Number uh, three, be generous with my heart. Remember that word where we spit in everyone's head? Splagidzomai? What I think is so interesting is I find it easy for me to be generous with my time but not necessarily easy to be generous with my heart. Anybody ever do that? Willing to give people some time, but you don't necessarily really care? This guy really cared. Because the word for compassion was he felt in his heart for him like that was his own son. Tore up his own clothing. Used his own wine. Used his own oil. Took him to the inn stayed up all night caring for him because other people didn't. You see, he wasn't just generous with his time, but he's generous with his heart. And lastly is this, be generous with my wallet. He gave what is roughly the equivalent of 24 to 48 days of a hotel stay for that guy to recover and get back on his feet. God, what does God want of us, out of us in our life? To love God and to love people. And with Jesus Christ, it intensifies how much we love God, especially as we're going to look at the greatness of what Jesus has done for us this week. But let the intensity of our love for Jesus Christ grow. But let the intensity of that love for one another grow as well. As we passionately love God, God also calls us to radically love people. Be generous with our time. Be generous with our heart. Be generous with our wallet. Even to people that are not naturally our friends. People that are even our enemies. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.